0: The curiosity of...
1: A child.
0: Episode 48. Exciting. I actually wrote it down this time.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: Yes, in nice big writing so we don't forget.
1: This episode, we sail around the globe the wrong way, telling an epic tale of survival, visit a tropical island in search of gold, and learn about an unusual hermit.
0: That's right, but before we do that, I've got a couple of quick announcements for you. So, um, first of all, we are delighted to have been invited back to Intelligent Speech, for this year. And it's an online history conference by history podcasters for history fans. And what's the theme this time, Anton?
1: Contingency.
0: Yeah, and contingency plans. Um, And there's some really big names talking this year, including us, of course, and uh, History on Fire and Our Fake History. And it's on the 4th of November 2023, from 10am to 6pm Eastern Standard Time. And if you use the offer code Curiosity, you get 10% off. And you can buy your tickets at intelligentspeechonline.com. And we've got a really exciting uh, contingency plan, which we're working on at the moment. Well, we're not working on the plan, we're working on the tail of the plan.
1: hmm You better buy tickets. You have to. Hey everyone, my name's Sebastian Major, and I am the host of the Our Fake History podcast. I'm Rebecca Larson with the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. This is Greta Hardin. I'm the host
0: of The History of American Food. Hi, my name is Benjamin Jacobs. I'm the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. Hello, I'm Anton. And I'm Rick. We're the QSD for Char podcast. I'm David Montgomery, host of the Siakla.
1: Hi, I'm Bree from Pontifax.
0: My name is Roberto
1: Toro, and I'm the host of Czar Power and the History of Sagardello, Georgia.
0: Hello, and welcome to tosalis Rankium. I'm Jamie. And I'm Rob, and this is letting you know that we will be speaking at Intelligent Speech. I am looking forward to speaking at Intelligent Speech 2023. And I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech Online this year. Mark your calendars for this November 4th. Intelligent Speech, the online conference for history fans by history podcasters.
1: It's a three ring circus of fascinating content with around 24 hours of live presentations and roundtables happening in four digital rooms. This year is all about contingencies.
0: Times when history meets the unexpected.
1: The topic of my keynote address is no contingencies, stories of historical figures who did not have a backup plan.
0: All about the tutors and their contingency plans, because let's be real, they had a
1: lot of them. So what are we gonna be doing?
0: We're going to be telling the story of what happens when you're starving in a city under siege for months, surrounded by food. Food that you can't eat as it's your life's work. Food that's more important than you are.
1: So go to intelligencespeechonline.com to get your tickets.
0: We'll see everybody on November 4th.
1: If you love the podcast, please vote for us at the British Podcast Awards. Go to britishpodcastawards.com slash voting. Uh, search for the course of a child and vote
0: yeah thank you very much for doing that and don't forget to leave a review as well wherever you're listening which helps us out Um, just a quick thing one last announcement in non-podcasting news I founded a brand new web and design agency with a couple of my friends and we're called you and us and it's something that we've long dreamed of doing so if you want really amazing design brilliant development Um, like branding, advertising, web development, check us out at uandos.co.uk. That's U-A-N-D-U-S.co.uk.
1: I can vouch for that being good.
0: Oh, thank you, mate. No bias there.
1: No, but it it is actually good. It is actually good.
0: Yeah, but yeah, a lot of experience there. Quite old now. (laughs) Anyway, shall we get on with the show, mate? I mean, what are we talking about this time?
1: We are talking about treasure.
0: So when you imagine treasure, what kind of things do you think about? What comes to mind for you?
1: I think of pirates, pirates of the Caribbean, um, lots of TV shows where they go on treasure hunts.
0: Yeah, and lots of adventures and stories and stuff like that. Actually, pirates do come up a lot, don't they, there? Mm. But um, in a way, the pirates always seem to be like goodies, or well, quite often the goodies, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Or the events that you're going on, that treasure, just not matter who it belongs to. I mean, it's yours at the end of the day, if you get it, isn't it? Um, but we're not going to start with Pirates. No Now, our first story is the tale of a hermit And um, it's also a very sad account of a man who was obsessed and desperate to discover doubloons So are you ready? I'm ready Okay, well this, um, this story comes from a book called Hairy Men in Caves I like that title It's a really good title and it's all about hermits in America But before we meet our hermits, we set the scene a little bit It's 1864 and the American Civil War is still raging and James and John Reynolds, they're members of the Third Texas Cavalry, but the brothers become better known as the Reynolds Gang, and they launch raids into Colorado um, from Texas. And they, the idea is that they're going to go and plunder stagecoaches and towns in the area around South Park. There's also lots of gold mines and things in the area. Beast. South Park? Yeah, that, that is the same South Park as in the TV show. Not that you've ever seen that, of course.
1: No, I've never even heard of it.
0: No, no. You know through the socks that I still wear with South Park characters on. Yeah. The brothers, they soon amass a considerable fortune from all the raiding they're doing and they attract the attention of the Union. He sent a force led by Colonel Shivington to capture them. Now, he spotted flickering flames of their campfire on the 31st of July and um, soon a shootout ensued, one of the bandits was shot dead and he had his head severed and then the Union forces they kept that as a trophy.
1: That's treasure.
0: That that is the real treasure here, yes. And then the rest of the gang, they ran for the hills. Then after several days of hunting, five more of the bandits were captured, but John Reynolds, he managed to escape like the gang leader. The five prisoners, they should have been um, held to await their sentencing but Colonel Shevington he wanted to really make a point here so he ordered them to be executed but his men refused um, and they actually fired over the heads of these captured men so the colonel himself he shot one of the men in the head but then one of his soldiers who had been robbed previously by the gang he shot the rest of them dead so pretty brutal but in the official report that Colonel Shevington wrote he says that they had tried to escape but later on, there was some evidence found that they had been tied up around a tree. So that was obviously a fake report that had been given there. Just trying to cover up the bad things they have been doing. That's naughty. That's very naughty. But there's no gold or treasure yet, is there?
1: Mm-mm, except from the severed head.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, the big prize. Mm-hmm. Um, so James Reynolds, um, seven years later, he was mortally injured in a shootout. And on his deathbed, he drew a map, giving the location of the stash of the treasure that they had taken when they were gang all these years earlier. And he also left a letter, and on it he wrote, Jim and me buried the treasure the morning before the posse attack on Geneva Gulch. You go up above there a little ways, where you find one of our horses mired down in the swamp. On up at the head of the gulch, turn to the right, and follow the mountain a little further around, just above the head of Deer Creek, we found an old prospect hole at about the timber line. There we placed $40,000 in beanbacks wrapped in silk oilcloth and three cans of gold dust. We filled the mouth of the cave up with stones and then, 10 steps back, struck a butcher knife into a tree about four feet from the ground and broke the handle off and left it pointing towards the mouth of the hole. So they've buried the treasure and they've stuck a knife in a tree pointing at the location where it should be. So where's our hermit, I hear you cry.
1: Where's our hermit? Yeah.
0: It's the early 1870s and up in the hills a man has built himself a cabin and surrounded it with holes. He's mining. He's not very good but he is enthusiastic. And his name is? Um, John. No. (gasps) He's not a member of the gang.
1: He's not a member of the gang. Um, Is it a present? President?
0: No. No. No.
1: Is it, um, I don't know.
0: His name is Anton. It's Anton. Yes, Anton Lastman.
1: That's my name, by the way.
0: That is your <laughs> name, yeah. That's why I changed this story. <laughs> During his life, he had married twice, and his first wife would die of loneliness. Oh, yay. And his second wife, tired of his fruitless gold fever, would drink poison and kill herself. Oh, yay. Now, I think he barely noticed that the women were gone, and he grew old, and his cabin fell into disrepair, and so he moved into a cave in his land, but he still dug holes. Until, one day, Anton Spade hit something. And bending his tired body down to the ground and brushing away the soil, a twinkle caught his eye. It was gold! Excitedly, he took his find down to the nearby village, exclaiming that he had discovered the Reynolds Gang's lost gold. And one of the locals there, they advised him to catch the next train to Denver and hire an attorney so that he could protect his discovery. So he did just that the very next morning. So he has struck gold here, after all these years of digging and all that suffering, he's finally rich. Finally. So he bent, double with age, but still with a spring in his step, he enters the attorney's office and he sinks into the chair and his fragile body is dwarfed by the plush furniture that he's on. And so Anton, he excitedly tells the story that he has found the Reynolds brothers' treasure. And then there's a pause, a <gasps> he takes his last breath, slumps over forward. Inspired. Oh dear. And he never did say where he found his treasure. It's somewhere up in his land, but he didn't give the exact position. And it's said to still be hidden somewhere until this day, waiting to be uh, discovered by another prospector, wishing to try their luck.
1: What and are the chances of that?
0: Say that's who you're named after.
1: Is it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't actually know how true that story is. Uh, even the bit about the Reynolds gang, because I read three or four different accounts as to exactly what happened there. Well, that was nice. Yeah. Um, So do you have a better treasure story than that, Anton?
1: I do. I've got the best treasure story. Okay. So my amazing story is Cocos Island. Cocos Island is situated 550 kilometres southwest of Costa Rica, our favourite place. Uh, It's a small island, just 24 square kilometres in size. It is a true paradise with 300 waterfalls and plants and animals found nowhere else in the world. Whilst writing Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson mentions Cocos Island in a letter, so it's become known as the real Treasure Island. It was discovered in 1526 by a Spanish navigator, Juan de Cabezas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Your Joe is working there.
1: Um, due to its remote location off the rich Spanish-controlled territories of South and Central America became a favorite spot for pirates to gather food, water, rest, and repair their ships. In the early 1800s, British naval officer turned pirate Captain Bennett Graham is rumored to have buried 350 tons of gold plundered from Spanish ships. That's a lot. The Portuguese pirate Don Pedro Bonita is said to have buried 300,000 pounds worth of silver and he also hid 750 gold bars, swords and precious stones in a cave. The exact location of Benito's treasures were lost when uh, he was captured by the British man of War and he and 81 of his crew were hanged. There are some rumours that Benito was Captain Graham and the British changed his identity to cover their embarrassment. The buried treasure is worth millions of pounds, but centuries of treasure seekers have failed to find it and these are not even the largest fortunes said to be on the island. The biggest is the Treasure of Lima. In 1820, the army of the José de San Martín was approaching Lima, so the Viceroy asked British trader Captain William Thompson to take the city's treasury to Mexico until the Spanish had regained control. The inventory of the Treasure of Lima included 113 gold religious statues, including a life-size Virgin Mary, hundreds of gold bars and silver, a thousand diamonds 200 chests of jewels 273 jeweled swords and more it was loaded onto Thompson's ship but with such wealth on board he killed the guards and cut the throat of the priests throwing their bodies overboard
0: i will do the same
1: <laughs> not just because they're Spanish um,
0: <laughs> oh, wow. uh, nothing gets the Spanish
1: that might not get into the podcast <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Thompson and his men buried the treasure on the Cocos Island planning to return it to collect it when he was safer. Unfortunately for him, they were soon captured by a Spanish warship and all but Thompson and his first mate were hanged. The Spanish took them back to Cocos demanding to be shown where the treasure was buried, but they escaped into the jungle. Thompson stayed in hiding for 20 years, however, in 1841 he said to have given a map to an Irishman named John Keating, showing the treasure's location. When Keating displayed gold and jewels, supposedly from uh, Cocos, the story soon spread. One man who dreamt of finding the treasure was August Geisler, a German sailor who ran away to sea. While living in Hawaii, he encountered a fellow German immigrant named Bartels.
0: Oh, very good accent.
1: Thank you. He showed him a treasure map of Cocos Island the map indicated that the legendary treasure of Lima was buried at a depth of six feet in a small bay on the northwest side of the island. Motivated by the prospect of immense wealth, Geisler sold his plantation and embarked on a journey to find the treasure. Arriving in Costa Rica, he discovered the existence of the treasure was widely known and many people had already searched for it, including the proposed digging spot.
0: So I think his treasure is going to be gone then.
1: Still, undeterred, Geisler remained steadfast in his belief and convinced 14 merchants and dockside workers to join him in forming a company. They chartered a ship called the Wilhelmina and sailed to the Cocos Island in March 1889. Geisler compared the actual surroundings to the details on Bartle's treasure map and began digging, but after a month of unsuccessful searching, most of the shareholders decided to return home. Determined to continue the quest, Geyser remained on the island with three others. They expanded their search, exploring different areas, but still found no trace of the treasure. The shareholders returned with supplies, but their renewed efforts proved fruitless as well. Frustrated by their lack of progress, Geyser realised he needed to search the entire island systematically. In 1894, the Costa Rican government granted Geyser the western half of Cocos Island, where the treasure was assumed to be located. He established an agricultural colony, hoping to support himself and his fellow colonists while continuing to search for the treasure.
0: See, I find that quite interesting that the government there, because he's, he's just moved there because he wanted to, really, um, because he's started trying to establish a little settlement there. He's actually just given it. I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you can not do that these days, I don't think.
1: But Costa Rica is the best place, and they're so nice.
0: That's where the island's now protected.
1: Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. The colony faced numerous challenges, including poor soil, rats, insects, and the island's remote location, which hindered commerce. Despite the difficulties, Geisler persisted for years. He grew various crops, raised animals, and relied on the island's resources for survival. However, the colony's prospects dwindled, and eventually, the (laughs) settlers returned to the mainland. Geisler and his wife, Clara, remained on the island alone, dedicating their lives to the pursuit of the treasure. Over the years, Geisler made several trips to the mainland to seek financial support, but was largely unsuccessful. On one of these trips, he left his wife, saying he'd be back after only six weeks, which ended up being six months. But to make matters worse, on Geisler's return, he found out that Clara had broken her arm the very day he left. Why? She made herself a splint and learnt how to set traps and make rope with only one arm. Amazingly, she recovered. Despite this, Geisler explored the island extensively, becoming intimately familiar with its geography and leaving his mark on the land. However, he never discovered the treasure he sought. In 1905, after years of fruitless searching and the hardships, Geisler and Clara left Cocos Island for good. Geisler spent a total of 17 years searching for the treasure, but only found a few gold pieces and an old gauntlet. He settled in New York with his sisters and continued to hold on to his dream, hoping for financial assistance to resume the search. Unfortunately, the treasure remained elusive until the end of his life. Kaiser passed away in 1935, leaving a will that divided his island among various individuals. However, the Costa Rican government contested his ownership claim and reclaimed the island for themselves. The Cocos Island treasures still remain a mystery until this day. Approximately 400 expeditions visit the island, but no treasure has been found. The island has been designated as a national park, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and a national cultural and historical treasure. Permits are now required for treasure hunting, and the island's only human inhabitants are park rangers. The fate of the treasure of Lima, and whether it was buried on Cocos Island, still remains a mystery.
0: Well, right, okay, you're winning the stories of treasure so far. I know. <laughs> that, that, that was an amazing story. Because we don't even know if the treasure was really buried there. And that's what makes it um, yeah, so interesting and such a mystery is it might not even be on that island, or it might have been found by somebody else and taken off already. So there's yeah, so many things, but it's going to be a, an amazing place.
1: Yeah, maybe someone took it and kept it a secret. But um, Geisler, he made boats and stuff out of... Hollowed out logs, I'm pretty sure, and he used bed sheets as sails and stuff, or the classic yeah, yeah. stuff like that. But it was really cool, and he had some other families to live on the island, and they had like a uh, some farms and stuff, and some domesticated hogs, things like that.
0: Yeah. So whilst he had this obsession with the gold, and that's been our theme so far, is this obsession with finding treasure. It seems like unlike Anton, um, like <laughs> he really um, lived with the environment really well, and you know, You can actually imagine that being an amazing lifestyle being on this beautiful island out there okay you're quite isolated but they really learned like you're saying to live with the land and grow everything they needed to survive there and yeah, it's almost like a paradise
1: Mm -hmm. let's see if you can one-up me with your story here
0: Okay, so uh, our final story of this episode is The Voyage of the Centurion.
1: Dun, dun, dun!
0: Featuring a Guernsey grate. <gasps> yes, I've got another Guernsey grate for you.
1: I'm excited now.
0: Yeah. Um, so let us head to Portsmouth on the south coast of England. It's Christmas Day, 1739. So what would you like to be doing on Christmas Day, Anton?
1: Um, eating turkey, opening presents and treasure hunting.
0: Treasure hunting, okay. Well, uh, this wasn't exactly the case for Guernsey man, Philip Sumray, and he wrote... Received my commission as third lieutenant on His Majesty's ship, Centurion, Captain George Anson Commander. Repaired immediately aboard, and found her fitted out with £22,400 of bread, much broken by the driving of the tide... And then he goes on to list a few more items. So this is in the morning, another 21 packs of beef come on, or pecks as he says. So 3,063 items. They bring on um, jars of oil, like uh, 738 gallons of oil. They bring on more bread, uh, heads of groats, barrels of flour, um, six firkins of butter and nine and a half heads of vinegar.
1: I like this bit here. It says heads of pork.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, so they bring on heads of port.
1: You just said heads of port.
0: Did I say port? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, they might have some port on board as well. So who is Philip, I hear you ask?
1: Who is Philip?
0: Uh, well, he was born on 17th of November, 1710, on the wonderful island of Guernsey, but he would later study in Jersey. Uh, and then in Southampton. Yay! And we'll actually be using extracts from his logs of the voyage to help tell this story. And he was first introduced to the Royal Navy by his uncle, who was a captain. And the sea ran strong in their family, with two of his cousins also becoming admirals. And his nephew, which we'll do an episode on one day, was Admiral James Someray, 1st Baron de Someray, who served with Nelson and also led the Royal Navy's Baltic fleet aboard HMS Victory. So that's something to look forward to.
1: He is a big he great.
0: He is, I know, I'm a bit scared of doing him. (laughs) But why was Philip, why was he joining uh, Commodore George Anson? And just so you know, Commodore is the rank above captain, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, several years earlier, the Spanish had cut off the ear of a British captain while searching his ship. And needing not much of an excuse in those days, uh, the British decided that vengeance was needed. So begun the War of Jenkins' Ear. And the main thrust of the British forces, they were going to be sent up to the Caribbean um, to do some raiding and stuff there and protect um, like the British colonies there. Uh, so Anson wasn't going with those though. So he was only going to be given what was left available in terms of ships and s- troops and things. Okay.
1: The battered bunch.
0: The battered bunch, yeah. Well, it's you're going to be shocked by this, I think. <laughs> um, and he had been tasked to annoy and distress the Spanish in the South Pacific <laughs> By taking, sinking, burning or destroying all their ships. And to surprise or take any towns or places belonging to the Spaniards on the coast. And to do this, they'd have to round Cape Horn. So that's South America. That's and
1: difficult to get past as well.
0: It's really difficult to get past. Yeah, there's, there's amazing accounts of it coming up. And so, yeah, these waters were relatively uncharted. And they're going to raid up the um, west coast of South America. Now, in these days the Royal Navy is pretty good and the Spanish are not quite the power they once were. Um but they still have their South American empire and during the mid 1700s when this happens, uh, they were looking at ways to rediscover some of their lost prestige. And they were also still sending shed loads of gold and silver from the Americas to Spain and they, a lot of that's going up through the Philippines on that way around.
1: That was because like the Incans and stuff didn't value gold as Currency, they've hired cocoa beans, I'm pretty sure, instead.
0: And also because they just basically become slave labour mm. and exploited.
1: And we don't like slave labour.
0: No, we don't. So they've loaded this food onto the boats, yeah? But it's still going to be another nine months until they set sail. And the flotilla totaled eight ships in all. So I don't quite know what happened to all that bread on board. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you don't eat well aboard ships in the 1700s. So the ships that they've got are uh, the Centurion, which was what's called a fourth-rate ship, of a 1,000 tons, 60 guns and 400 men, and the flagship. They also had the Gloucester, which was 853 tons, 50 guns, 300 men. Then they had the Seven, the Pau, which were slightly smaller ships, and then they had two really small ones, which were the Wager and the Trial. Um, and then they also had two merchant vessels going along with them at the start of the journey, called the Anna and the Industry, which would just be carrying additional supplies for them. So it's not a bad-sized force, is it? No. They were also going to take um, 559 marines with them to help with the landings and the attacks and the uh, towns and things. Uh, But as I said earlier, the main thrust was going up to the Caribbean, wasn't it? So Anton, he gets basically what's left. Uh, So um, he had men from Chelsea Hospital, so Chelsea pensioners. So soldiers too sick, old or injured to fight, but still capable of doing light duties.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, is that them there?
0: That's them there today, yeah. Oh, well, today. Well, not, not the same men. <laughs> no. So many of them were over 60. Oh, dear. Well, many of them were over 70, sorry, and sick or maimed. And uh, some of them even had to be carried on stretches down to Portsmouth.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, this is a disgusting stain on history, that these old men who should be in their retirement have been forced aboard these ships. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, now, 240 and one of them had actually run away <laughs> these are the
1: 240 you could run
0: yeah yeah these are the, yeah the 240 best ones <laughs> <laughs> exactly so we would run away um so that meant they needed to fill up the ranks with some fresh recruits many of whom hadn't even been taught how to fire a gun yet when they were drafted or anything <laughs> so a lot of them were what's it the press ganging where you get forced aboard the ships and it's been said to be one of the worst crews ever assembled
1: where does the treasure come into this? It's definitely not these guys.
0: No, they're all treasures. <laughs> um, anyway, so first, they'd sail for Madeira. I'm going to go through some of his logs here, again okay, as we're telling the story. At seven a.m., we made signal to weigh and made sail with His Majesty's ships, the Gloucester, Seven, Pearl, Wager, and Trials sloop, with two merchant ships laden with provisions for our squadron. So after they set September. When he had started in December the year earlier mm-hmm. now the voyage to Madeira took 41 days and when they got there the governor reported that he'd seen seven Spanish warships this previous week um, so luckily they managed to avoid those and they spent about a month in Madeira taking on supplies and letting the men rest and recover from illness and then it was time to go out into the Atlantic now when you're sailing these days it's really important to go at the right time of year to get all the trade winds and the currents in the right direction it's during the year as remember what's that baby went on in the Coty Sark. Yeah. And they had that game that you could play where you follow the trade winds. So just picture that as well, having to go around the world and things yeah. the right way.
1: Because sometimes, um, like going the long, what you think is the longer way around, but with the wind is two times faster than just going up but slower.
0: Exactly, yes. Um, okay, so they're sailing out onto the Atlantic resupplied, and um, all the extra weight from the supplies in the ships were actually pushing them really low in the water. And that meant that they had closed most of the ports on the side. So inside it got really, really hot and stuffy and smelly. And uh, each man only had about 40 centimetres for his hammock. So you've got no space, you're just crowded in there. Must be absolutely awful. So the plan was to sail to the coast of Brazil, then head south and round Cape Horn to enter the Pacific. Now, a few more accounts from his logs here, okay? 26th of November, 1740. The whole part, a constant moderate gale with fair weather. Richard Pearce, an invalid deceased. 29th of November. It blew a fresh constant gale. Amos Gordon and Edward Major Seaman departed this life. 12th of December. 9am, Robert Wilden, our purser, being quite worn out departed this life. 15th of December. Very uncertain squally weather, with rain. David Redman, a marine, departed this life. So, as they're sailing... um I think it's quite a common occurrence anyway to get deaths at sea then, but they're getting quite not a few numbers. They're not of old age, numbers. though. They're not <laughs> of <old> age. No. <laughs> oh, God. Uh. Uh, now, they reached Brazil on the 18th of December, and it was a really welcome relief for them after crossing over the Atlantic. And let's let Ray take over again. Half past nine, we passed by an island the Portuguese governor resides on, saluted the fortification with 11 guns, The water on both the island and the continent is extant and preserved beyond what I have ever observed. After having it on board for a short time, it discharged itself with a green putrid scum which subsided to the bottom and left the remainder as clear as crystal. It's a lovely water there, Mm -hmm. if you leave it.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Now he's talking about the island a little bit. The woods abound with several medicinal and aromatic plants one might imagine oneself in a druggist's shop. As you traverse the woods, the fruits are chiefly the orange, lemon, lime, citron, melons, grapes, guavas and pineapple, and many potatoes and onions. Here is a great plenty of oxen, with many pheasants, inferior to ours. But with abundance, and monkeys and parrots all edible, they have a very singular bird called the toucan.
1: This reminds me a bit of um, Terry Pratchett books, uh, like guards and stuff, where it's not the best bunch of soldiers (laughs) and stuff. But also, um, like, they're saying the water's nice if you leave it a bit. Yeah. So it's sort of nice, but only if you only if you have the right mindset for it,
0: yeah, I guess. In those days, that, that was nice, though. We didn't have nice filtered, sanitised water like we do today. Um, but I like his accounts of when he's exploring the islands and things as well. Despite sounding like a tropical paradise, another 80 men would die on the island during their month-long stay there wow um but luckily there's now starting to get lots of lovely citrus fruit inside them so obviously you need that vitamin c Mm -hmm, to
1: stop scurvy
0: exactly yeah and actually i want to cover um a little bit more about the place he visits maybe on a bonus episode and look possibly at some of the illnesses you get to see as well all that disgusting stuff
1: on a bonus episode is that going to be on patreon potentially in the future then
0: oh yes that's a great idea yes
1: if you're not already on patreon subscribe to our patreon Uh, I think there's three tiers. There's like a £1, £5, £10. The £5 is probably my preferred one.
0: That's the recommended one. But can we stop this advertising, please, and get on with the story about the treasure?
1: I'm sorry, it's just built into me.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah, so the Spanish, they were actually aware of um, this British fleet sailing down, and they had sent Admiral Bizarro to hunt them down. And um, Anson ships, they're still so full of supplies that the, uh, many of the gun ports were blocked so if they did end up in battle with the Spanish um, they wouldn't be able to get all their cannons out and they'd have to start throwing things overboard <laughs> to even be able to fight um, and yeah with the Spanish fleet nearby they couldn't wait any longer so they decided now is time to sail around Cape Horn which as you said is one of the most dangerous sea passages in the world whilst doing this there was a risk that their ships would become separated so they'd prepare some rendezvous points and- in case this ever happened, like um, right further around the coast. And it wasn't just the Marines or crew who were dying. The officers were too. And this included Captain Danny Kidd.
1: Oh, no, at least... Wait, Dandy Kidd. At least he is a child. Oh, yeah.
0: Dandy Kidd, yes. Captain <gasps> Dandy Kidd. Better. There were children on board, actually. Um, yeah, so he was captain of the trial.
1: What, 50-year-olds?
0: <laughs> no, no, young children, your age. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so Captain Dandy Kidd of the trial try all, um, he sadly he passed away uh, from an unnamed fever that made him delirious and go mad during his final hours. Now this actually led to um, Philip Suray getting his first command. Captain kid's death made a revolution by promotion among us and I was appointed First Lieutenant of the Commodore but my predecessor, Lieutenant Sanders to whose command the sloop descended that's the trial was taken dangerously ill and became incapable of taking possession of his charge and I was ordered to take command until his recovery So Dandy Kidd has died then the guy who was meant to replace him has got too ill to take over so now Sunray's in charge of the trial
1: (laughs) Cool (laughs)
0: I keep saying try all, but it's the trial, it's the old spelling it throws me. Mm. Um, anyway, so this was one of the worst times of the year to attempt round in the Cape, and they were doing it backwards, so oh against the currents and pervading winds. <laughs> now, some reason, in this little ship, the trial, and the little diddy ones, um, they would be actually leading the way, um, <laughs> because you send the little ship round first to sound, to see how deep the water is and stuff like Fathom. that. Yeah, how many fathoms deep it is, yeah, exactly. And he'll be leading the way for about seven weeks in this boat. Um, so there's a lovely picture here of a vessel, rough seas.
1: Yeah, it looks very rough.
0: And so we're going to begin with storms for a month. Ah. And um, the captain of the POW, he actually said that they were the largest waves he had ever seen and that the thousand ton centurion was thrown around like a toy ship. Another of the seafarers, he wrote, It was the last cheerful day that the greatest part of the bus would ever live to enjoy. Ah. Yeah. And in his log, uh, some rays started noting the conditions, and he said, I was stationed to look out for islands of ice, and had to endure such fatigue from the severity of the weather and duty which the nature of the service necessarily brought on me that really my life was hardly worth preserving at the expense of such hardships. Our own ships had several miraculous escapes, which, in the obscurity of the night and the violence of the weather, often endangered floundering the sloop. So the sloop's little ship, yeah. Mm-hmm freezing cold and stuff is being washed overside or damaged and uh i mean how are they going to keep all that bed dry i know in yeah, that condition I
1: um they don't have heaters or anything there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well they would have a fire on board for cooking so they'd have oh. a fire on board these wooden ships so i guess there was like some sort of stones or something around it or ceramic or something like that just or metal not wood. <laughs> just not weird no um yeah <laughs> so 23rd of march blew very hard with a large hollow sea Breaking continually over us, our masts and rigging, all coated and frozen with snow and ice. So that's salt water as well, which has got a lower freezing point. Mm. Um, 24th of March. The sloop hauled, being half full of water with the seas, which had shipped and were obliged to keep bailing and pumping all night. Our pumps often likewise, being very indifferent, being continually choked up with sand. So the boats were also now filling with water and they've got to keep pumping it all out. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this stage, the Power and the Seven—they were both um, turned for home and leave for the rest of the ships. The the merchant ones had left them uh, Madeira. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So not only are the conditions really terrible, but their navigational charts were actually wrong sometimes by hundreds of kilometres. Oh dear. Because it's so uncharted, and you, you could, at that time you couldn't measure longitude. So that's going around like the equator. That direction is your longitude.
1: One of them definitely left their glasses at home.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, So you actually find that um, Philip Sumrase, he'll mention Dampier's charts a lot. Remember Dampier when we covered him? Mm -hmm. And he'd be one of the few people to go around there like three times. Um, And they'd be making revisions to the charts and always continually improving them. And whilst they're doing this, they also have to keep pumping water out of the holes of the boats. Throughout all of this, they were also dealing with sickness, fevers, dysentery, and one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever recorded. Oh dear. I've got a beautiful picture here i nah, let's, let's
1: get past that bit.
0: <laughs> it's only a diagram.
1: <laughs>
0: we took the tarpaulings off the gratings and hatchways to air between the decks and clean the ship as much as lay in our power. It really was scarce conceivable what a stench and nastiness our poor sick people had caused among each other and which contributed to infect those who were struggling against distemper. So I've already described how hot. And horrible it was. Now it's cold and horrible. <laughs> but people say so sick, and there's so little airflow down there that you've got all these dead and dying and ill people just festering down there. And the death toll it keep rising. And some rate for six weeks they sailed and prayed that less than five people a day.
1: Down that old age.
0: It's not just the old age though. These are the young people as well, mate. Oh no. And it was so bad that men were actually dying on deck, and their bodies were just being left there as nobody had the energy to move them. Um, But despite all of this, none of the ships were lost. How? I know, it's incredible. So these crews, and even the people who haven't died, they're going to be so weak now. And just keeping, how do you keep your morale up?
1: Is our guy okay?
0: Yeah, he's fine at the moment, yeah. Yeah, he's still writing his logs. Um, And in one of them, he he writes of an explosion. (laughs) In the height of the school had several violent laps of thunder before the explosion, which took a quick, subtle fire ran along our decks, which burst and made a report like a pistol and struck several of our men and officers who, with the violence of the blow, were black and blue in several places. The fire was attended with a strong sulfurous smell. So uh, maybe for religious, though, you might think the devil was punishing you as well, perhaps. Fire and brimstone. Now, mid-April... Uh ray, he returned to the Centurion, where he found nearly everybody was infected with scurvy. And in his logs, um, he noted that every time they sailed north, so you tack up and down against the wind, uh, the spirits of the men would improve, mm-hmm. but they're not round yet, so they're still going south again as they're going <laughs> against the wind. Um, but what often must have been a really long, agonising and restless week, uh, cold, hungry and ill, they actually managed to make their way around the Cape, but a few of the ships have become separated. Uh, but as you remember, they had their plans to rendezvous and at one place lower down the coast. But I'm going to skip over that and go up to Juan Fernandez Island, which is an island off the coast of Chile. And um, that's where they were scheduled to meet. OK, now, do you remember the Spanish?
1: I remember uh, the Spanish. Bizarre,
0: right? Yeah. In their pursuit around um, the Cape, they had lost a ship and also half their men to the storms and they actually turned back. Away from the storms and everything, how do you think the voyage to Juan Fernandez went out of there in calmer waters?
1: Um, I'm not at sure. all. Good or bad? Probably better.
0: Shall we find out? Yep. Well, their charts were wrong <laughs> and they couldn't find the island and it's about 300 kilometres further out to sea than they thought. And they sailed the wrong way originally and then they had to turn back when they saw the case of the mainland because that's all Spanish, you can't go there. And
1: oh dear.
0: And uh, so in those couple of weeks, uh, another hundred men perished ah. um, due to scurvy aboard the Centurion. But the delay did actually mean they had a little bit of luck. At length, we arrived at the island of Juan Fernandez in the South Sea after having several imminent dangers of shipwreck on the coast of Chile. We anchored here on the 16th of June, 1741, just 10 days after the departure of a Spanish ship of war, which was sent by the Admiral of these Seas, so the Spanish know they're there messages travelled across the continent and they're hunting them. And this is just as well, because despite being a thousand ton sixty gun ship, the Centurion only had seventy two able crew members <laughs> left aboard, and that included boys. The rest were sick or dead. The task that normally takes, say, twenty minutes to would take a couple of hours. <laughs> because they just didn't have the strength to do it. So the voyage up until this point has taken them nine months. So remember, the Costa Rica packet sailed all the way from London to San Francisco, so even further around in 131 days. Mm-hmm. 130 years later, but this is nine months. <laughs> and now other ships from their flotilla, they started to arrive, although the wager had been shipwrecked and their crew had mutinied. <laughs> um, of the trial, uh, some rays wrote that a great number of the men had been lost or were sick, and it was impossible to conceive the stench filthiness in which the men lay. So... Horrible conditions again. Then of the Gloucester, he said, I went aboard her and found her in the most deplorable condition, nearly two-thirds of her men being dead, and very few of the rest able to perform their duty.
1: Honestly, they need to step up their game here.
0: (laughs) I think that's a little bit harsh. They've been going on this treacherous journey, and they are. Um, So on Juan Fernandez, they would stay for three months, recuperating and repairing their ships, and it really must have felt like paradise to be there, I think. Or some lovely woodcuts, which one of these sailors did, which we are have in the show notes. And um, this island, I can't remember if we spoke about it in the William Dampier episode, but he went there as well. Because it's where Alexander Selkirk had been left marooned for five years, and he was later rescued by Dampier. And um, Selkirk, he is the inspiration for Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe.
1: We did mention it. I don't remember if we mentioned the name or not. We probably did. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, we did. I remember it now. Juan Island.
0: And um, Yeah, so when Selkirk was left there, um, he some goats were left with him, and uh, so that's got a bit of description from some on the island now. Their flesh was excellent and ate like venison, and perhaps might still be the remains of Selkirk's nursery. I shall not attempt a description of this island at present, but only tell you that it is the most romantic and pleasant place imaginable, abound with myrtle trees and covered with turnips and sorrel. Its bays are teeming with all kinds of fish, it seemed calculated for the reception of distressed seamen. We stayed here three months employed in retrofitting our ships and restoring the health of our sick. I cannot omit to mention the sea lions, which seem as extraordinary a production as any in the creation, and might justly deserve the observation of an expert naturalist. This surprising creature partakes in a double nature being truly amphibious. It divides its time equally between land and sea. Now, I'm going to skip over a couple of months, okay? But remember that they were meant to be causing a bit of a revolt and havoc all along the... Case to South America, yeah? For yep. the British against the Spanish. Um, but with pretty much everybody dead or sick, that's not going to happen. So instead, they did manage a couple of minor raids in the case, including sacking the town of Peta, um, where they plundered some money and jewels, um, although most of that had been hid- hidden before they arrived, because you're going to see the ships coming in the abandoned town. Mm-hmm. Um, so they set fire to it, except the churches. And they also destroyed and captured several Spanish ships and they slowly worked their way up the coast of Mexico um, from where the Manila Galleon would depart. Now, you might remember it from Dampier's episode, if we th- got there. I think so. It's the Treasure Galleon, which takes all the treasure across the Pacific um, every year from the Americas to the Philippines, which um, at the time was a Spanish colony. And so they waited out at sea for several weeks, hoping to catch it. And I think it was in port at the time, but eventually they were tired of waiting. And on the 6th of May 1742, they left Mexico to cross the Pacific, not wanting to go around Cape Hornigan. By this stage, they only had the Centurion and they'd the Gloucester left, mm-hmm. because they weren't the other ships they captured, or they were just in states of disrepair by that stage. I think they said that quite a lot of the Spanish ships they captured weren't particularly seaworthy. They're okay going up and down the coast, but not further out to sea. So back to summary here. We left Acapulco on the 6th of May, 1742, and here begins another series of misfortunes and mortalities surpassing the first. <laughs> so worse than the first. Um, We had a passage of three months and a half to the Landron Islands, which is generally made in two. Yet it was a vulgar opinion amongst our people that we had sailed so far past all the land in the world. The length of time and the badness of the weather rendered both our ships leaky. This joined to our mortality, the scurvy raging amongst us, as much as ever. So soon they'll be down to one ship on the 15th of August. These 24 hours, chiefly calm, with exceedingly hot, salty weather. Lay near to the Gloucester, under foresail and mizzen. In the evening, the Gloucester's longboat came aboard with 46 sick men, most of them very ill. Three died in getting over the side. <laughs> so you just climbing aboard the other ship. I mean, we're laughing, but it must have been so bad. Um, and yeah, so there's basically no crew left to man the Gloucester. Are people employed in clearing the Gloucester... Having got as much off as our strength and time would permit us, the commander gave us orders to set her on fire. The prospect of our last ship of our squadron blazing within two miles of us going to make us as melancholy a scene as I have ever observed since I've been in the Navy. So, yeah, the, um, they're down to just the Centurion now, not in a particularly good condition either. There's up to seven feet of water, so what, two metres of water inside the, um, the hull. That's so, quite a lot. Yeah, so they're having to man the pumps all the time. So much so that apparently even Anson got involved as bailing out the water. Mm-hmm. So they, they needed some land, desperately. And the first place that they found was Guam. And I guess you controlled Guam. Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Spanish. Uh, so this was in late August 1742. Um, but it's not actually quite that bad because it actually hit an island 100 kilometres north of Guam first. Okay. When they got there, they basically found it undefended. And I think there were only 21 men on the island and all. Um, and outside was sailing a little Spanish bait. Here's summary's account. There were about seven men in her unarmed, two of which were Spaniards and the others Indians. These people informed us that the island was uninhabited and was used by the Spanish garrison at Guam. They were sent by the governor to kill beef and they were preparing it in the sun And to then return to Guam. So yeah, they've landed on this little island and it seems like it's a brilliant place for them to have here after travelling across the Pacific because it's not controlled by the Spanish and it's basically being used as a larder for a Spanish colony 100 kilometres away. Mm -hmm. So really, really good. And the island is called Tinian. And we anchored at an island called Tinian, uninhabited but abound with wild cattle, hogs, fowls and fruits. We could not have fallen on a better place. I am convinced that had we stayed 10 days longer at sea, we should have been obliged to take to our boats, our leak increasing so fast and our people being all infirm and disabled. We immediately sent all our sick ashore and began to hope for better times, feeding plentifully on race beef. So I think 10 days might have been stretching a bit with the state of their boats. Mm -hmm. Now, they only had about 70 fit crew and over 120 needed to be carried ashore. And 21 of those died in the places of being carried ashore
1: more beef for the rest of us
0: so <laughs> <laughs> they haven't got that desperate yet they're not uncasting nuts now they would remain in the that's I- not
1: what i meant by the way i meant that oh. <laughs> you're not going to eat the corpses now i
0: thought you meant eating the people
1: no no
0: <laughs> okay sorry um yeah so they would remain on this little island for two months repairing this enjoying as best they could and getting their strength back that seems to be uh, a common pattern here um, and all these gruelling voyages are really taking their toll on them. Um, but it's pretty good, eh, on this lovely island? I mean, the lock must finally be turning, do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah not as long as the island's pretty.
0: Yeah, so it's a lovely island. September the 18th. In rough seas, the ropes and anchors snapped, and the centurion was blown out to sea with 109 crew aboard. And that included uh, some ray. And um, he ordered that four guns be fired as an alert... And that left only 107 men on Tinian, including Anson. So now, they've now been separated and the ship in really bad condition, <laughs> just being blown out to sea. The anchors have snapped as well, so they can't even stop themselves properly. Oh dear. Yeah. And the ship still really badly damaged and taking on water. And its main are quite vulnerable by this stage. And they had to take down some of the sails because of, there's risk of them snapping in the wind. <laughs> so the currents continue to push them further and further out to sea. And I think they went a few hundred kilometres out to sea with a skeleton crew of unfit people and boys on board and all sorts. So Anson, fearing that he'd never see his beloved centurion again, ordered that the Spanish bark, such as the ship that the Spanish had taken Mm -hmm. over there, be cut in half and then lengthened. So I love the fact you just cut this (laughs) boat in half and then you're going to stick all these extra bits of wooden or panels. Uh, So he wanted to sail the two and a half thousand kilometres to China on that boat. They've also still got the Spanish. They haven't killed them. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're basically prisoners so they're still watching those guys as well but luckily somehow 19 days later some raids and their skeleton crew returned in the centurion
1: what <laughs>
0: yes they managed to sail it back somehow
1: that's why guns you better
0: <laughs> yeah I mean what legend. legend um, but then it got blown away again oh my god <laughs> only for five days this time um, then on October the 20th 1742 still damaged and barely seaworthy um, they decided to sail for Macau and um, that was, I think, it's pretty much the day the ship came back. They thought we can't keep it here. We're just going to have to grab everything off this island, get on it, and sail away. Um, and on 11th of November, they would arrive in Macau, so that's in China. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it was a neutral port. A lot of it was controlled by the Portuguese, and it was the only foreign colony on China. He still had a lot of Chinese officials and things there as well, and they weren't particularly happy having this man of war this British warship in port. So I see many um, merchant trading vessels, but never such a big battleship there. And it took months and months of negotiations and bureaucratic dealings to just arrange to get the ship repaired Mm -hmm. and to get food and stuff on. Um, And there were also French and Portuguese agents in the city working against the British and all sorts of cultural clashes with the Chinese where they didn't understand what was going on. So there's apparently one French captain. He says that, he would attack the centurion for 40,000 Spanish dollars. But the Spanish turned him down. And then even the British East India Company captains didn't really want them there because they were worried what effect it have on the trade. So everything's against them in the port mm-hmm. as well. The ship's not being repaired until finally, on the uh, 20th of January, 1743, there's an agreement reached. Some raised writes here, sent ashore our beams and spars and cleared our decks of all our lumber. Since our pinnace... To haul your us what, up. Sorry? Your, your pinnace? Yeah. yeah, our pinnace. Our pinnace <laughs> <laughs> and cotter agreed to give $2,000 for careening and completing the ship, such so the Centurion, entirely. This was esteemed a very extravagant price in these parts where a day's labour is extremely cheap. So, sounds like today, actually, we get cheap labour in um, China. Hmm. So, I'm not going to cover all of the dealings and wranglings with the Chinese. Unfortunately, all the tensions remained, but Anson, being the good British Royal Navy captain that he was, he promised to do nothing naughty whatsoever, and they were going to leave port on the 11th of April and just sail home after all these years out oh, at sea.
1: Okay. I believe him.
0: Or not. Ah. No, he wasn't going to do that. So once they had left Macau and sailed back out to sea, because it was a long, big river estuary that they went up there. Um, On the 19th of April, he told the crew that they were going to go and attack the Manila galleon. And this news was greeted with cheers and rejoicing, because a lot of them would have recovered by now.
1: And in the cheer, one of them died. Probably.
0: (laughs) Yeah, had a heart attack from the excitement. Um, Yeah, after so much trouble and hardship, um, the crew wanted something to show for their journey. So at the moment, all they'd done is sailed somewhere, (laughs) burnt a town, sunk a few Spanish ships, and. They got a little bit of treasure from the towns and stuff, but not a lot to show for it. And Mm -hmm. most of them were dead. Um, So by May, they were in position. So they sailed back down to the Philippines, okay? And they were waiting for the Galleon at Cape Espiritu Santo. This was the first place where the Manila Galleon would make landfall after its epic Pacific voyage. And so they lowered their top sail so they could remain hidden below the horizon. Just a single ship with 227 crew, 27 of whom were just boys out of the eight ships and nearly 2,000 crew who had left England years earlier. And they waited. And they waited. The end. Huh? Not really.
1: you keep getting me.
0: (laughs) On the 20th of June, they spotted sails on the horizon and the men were mad with joy. The ship was the Nostras Signora de Cavadonga. And it was said that its oak panels on the sides were too thick for any cannonball to pierce. <gasps> let's let's summarise tell the story, shall we? Warning this graphic scenes ahead. uh uh-uh. At sunrise we were agreeably surprised with the sight of a sail from the masthead in the southeastern quarter, her top gallant sails appearing half out of the horizon. We naturally concluded it must be one of the galleons. At eleven, her hole entirely out of the horizon. At past noon, we took in the top gallant sails and hauled up the main sail, and soon after hoisted the broad pendants and colours, and fired such of the chase, the bow guns, as could be brought to bear on her. The galleon immediately returned our fire. His shots were not well directed, and generally shattered our rigging. So There's a couple of things to note here. They're starting to go into battle, but they're saying that they saw the sails at what time was it in the morning?
1: Eleven. Oh no, earlier.
0: Yeah, ten or something, wasn't it? No, at At sunrise, sunrise. at sunrise So imagine you've been travelling for years And here's your big prize coming towards you And it's taking hours and hours It's like in a film where you get something coming in slow motion towards you And it just takes so long Imagine the anticipation of everything building there Thinking this is your one chance to do it
1: One of them definitely died when they were (laughs) waiting
0: My god Um, There's a beautiful painting here of the battle Oh, that's really nice It's lovely, isn't it? The light and the colour there and the water's gorgeous Okay, let's let sun rays carry on, shall we? Being come abreast of him, within pistol shot, the engagement began on both sides with great briskness. Our guns during the whole time being laden with ball and grape shot made havoc, as likewise our tops, which were full of our best marksmen, by our enemy's own confession, galled them extremely.
1: The best marksmen are the ones that can see, by the way.
0: Yeah, well they have been training a lot before this, and then by the tops they mean they put their best marksmen up on the um, mast high up so they could shoot down onto the mm. enemy ship. Grape shot, do you know what that is? Yeah, it's
1: like the um, net with the cannonballs on. Is it
0: not? No grape shot, imagine lots of grapes yeah. made of lead yeah. put into the cannon, so when you fire it, it's like a shotgun and scatters. Oh. So it's, it's, it's an anti infantry weapon rather than one that's gonna like yeah. into the ship. Yes. Yeah. So where were we? Our first broadside had a good effect with both his men and rigging. His ensign staff, amongst other things, was shot away. Then the assigned set on fire, but was soon extinguished by them. The enemy on his side kept plying us with his guns and pedres, which is a type of little gun, I think. I did look up, but I've forgotten. Um, The latter being loaded with bags of stains, iron nails, and musket ball quartered as for the muskets. So, again, like a shrapnel, like the grape shot, Mm -hmm. the pedres. After the first discharge of them, they were observed seldom to appear, our grape scouring the decks very successfully. (laughs) After nearly two hours' engagement from our first gun, he struck his standard. We hoisted the cutter and the Commodore sent me on board to take possession of her. <laughs> so, uh, somewhere he has been ordered to go and capture the ship. He, he's gone up from like third in command or whatever it was at the beginning, or third rate, right, to second in command now. <laughs> at my arrival on board, I found them in a state of mind that the conquered may generally be supposed to be in, being doubtful of the treatment they were to receive, and at the same time had no great opinion of our humanity from the different persuasions in religion having represented us to themselves as a set of cannibals. Their deck afforded such a scene as may be supposed after a sharp dispute, being promiscuously covered with carcasses, entrails and dismembered limbs. The main hatchway contained likewise several of their dead which had been thrown down during the action. The ship was surprisingly shattered in her hull, masts and rigging. The main mast was half shot through and few of the shrouds left standing. As to our ship, we received several shot on the hull, the foremast and bowsprit had likewise each been shot from the great guns. In the action, one man was killed at his quarters, another died within an hour of his wounds, and the third after an amputation of his leg, and the second lieutenant with fifteen men besides were wounded, thrust it into the engagement, in which, if the number of our guns and the weight of our metal be impartially considered, it must be confessed we engaged with an enemy with great advantages on our side. So, yeah, the casualties were very one-sided. As he said there, they only lost one man during the battle and another a couple of hours later than one with his leg when it was amputated Mm -hmm. and 15 men injured. The Spanish lost 76 men with another 84 injured.
1: 67 men.
0: 67 men, thank you. That's 76. Now, aboard the ship, there were um, 1.3 million pieces of eight and 34 and a half tons of silver.
1: (laughs) Who counted all of those?
0: <laughs> well, no, that's the funny thing. They, they kept they didn't count it reliably at first. And um Some Rays who'd been put in charge of this ship, which is the greatest prize ever captured by a British ship at the time. Um, he kept searching it and he'd find all these like loose panels, which there'd be more treasure behind. That's cool. And they would uh, know, empty out a, a a keg of flour and there'd be more treasure at the bottom of that. They'd <laughs> not it literally everywhere.
1: That's the hidden treasure.
0: So summary. he's been put in charge of the Manila Galleon, and it's in a pretty bad state. Um, and you've got a tiny crew, and you've just captured the jewel of the Spanish treasure fleet. You're in hostile waters. You're outnumbered by your prisoners two to one. <laughs> and um, so what are you going to go and do?
1: Um, surely you want to go back home.
0: Yeah, you want to start heading for home, but you're probably not going to get there and you're on seaworthy ships. mm so uh, let's sail back to China because they were so happy to see us the first time. <laughs> um, okay. The second time they arrived in Macau, the Chinese were even more distressed to see Anson than they were the first time with the Centurion um, towing the Spanish galleon behind towing. it. Yeah, so they tried to sail it originally and it, it just wasn't working because so had to start it towing just it. Wasn't working. <laughs> no. Um, and the Chinese also came up. <laughs> The Chinese also can understand understand um, why the British have taken so many prisoners and not killed them. So there's a cultural difference there. They, they, they're really confused, apparently, by having um, somebody like this ships that they go out to sea and they make their wealth through piracy, effectively, rather than trade. Mm. And they just, yeah, it's like this bizarre clash. And... Um, the, the main guy, like Chinese guy, I can't remember what they're called, um, he would never actually meet any of the Westerners in person. He would all work through agents. He had all these different competing people and whatever <laughs> going on. So it's really difficult. But Anson would get to see him. Because he was a uh, officer of the Royal Navy. Mm-hmm. He declined to pay the, the harbour fees and all sorts. It's like, we're, no, we're we're a Royal Navy battleship. <laughs> we're not going to do this. And we will torture you. And anyway, I'm not covering all the details there. So back to the prisoners, again. Okay? They have been kept below decks in really, really cramped conditions. You know, the sailors only had 40 centimetres. I imagine the prisoners had even less than that.
1: 35.
0: But um, they actually said that they were treated better than they expected to be. They thought they were just going to be killed. And in fact, the captain of the Covadonga, he would later write to Somre, thanking him for his kindness. I must write to you, only to give you due appreciation for the great zeal you have shown in favouring the persons who are prisoners in this ship. They have received from you special regard and affection. You give me great reason to show my gratitude under conditions which prevent me from doing so. I, thank God, have recovered from my pains, although there still remains those in my feet. But by walking, I hope to get better seen. In a few days from now, if I'm so fortunate, I hope to see you in port, where we shall be able to speak more at ease. Meanwhile, I pray, God, guard your life for many years, and I beg to remain with respect and affection. That's so amazing. So they've lost this massive ship. They've had like a big number of their crew killed. They've been stuck aboard, sailing back for a couple of months or something, back to China in horrible conditions. So, oh, thank you for looking after us so well. <laughs> So I think that shows maybe a bit of respect among the different captains there.
1: Or it just shows how bad these Spanish ships are.
0: (laughs) Well, they had been ordered to put any English to the sword in the South Pacific. So Anson and Co got captured. They wouldn't have had the same treatment. Anyway, eventually the centurion was repaired. Um, And I imagine having lots of silver and gold and stuff now would have helped smooth out those negotiations. And by December, they were ready to set sail for home. For real this time. Mm Mm-hmm. And just waiting till we hear what happens in their voyage, chain, <laughs> You ready? I'm ready. Actually, nothing of note. Oh. Yes. Nothing. You've
1: tricked me again.
0: I have tricked you again. And so after nearly four years after setting out, they anchor in St Helens in the Isle of Wight, at home at last, just with this and Now I so said, sold the Manila Galleon to uh, the Portuguese, I think. Mm-hmm. Only 145 of the original, 1,936 crew returned aboard the single remaining ship. All of the Chelsea pensioners died. Okay, I think yeah. one of their commanders, he held out until nearly the, well, not to the end, but he held out Quite the longest. Old. Yeah, um, Another 500 people had actually survived on, you know, the ships that turned back at the Cape. So mm-hmm. 500 survived there and the... Uh, the wager they wanted to need some of those. There's a big adventure there, which we might do. I haven't read about it yet, but we might cover that on our bonus. Anyway, so the numbers and the... That, I mean, horrible. <laughs> the Spanish had lost 12 merchant ships and four man of war, and of course, the Manila Galleon. So I think he half fulfilled his mission. Anson, Samray, and the crew were heroes when they arrived back in England. And they may have... Um, failed to cause the revolt in um, South America and had accidentally circumnavigated the globe but they had captured a manila galleon and the treasure was put aboard 32 wagons and paraded up from Portsmouth, I think it was and there were cheering crowds pulled through London and taken to the Tower of London and today it'll be worth £60 That's It's the largest treasure hall ever captured. Why? Yeah. So
1: they did actually do all right then?
0: I think the Spanish were doing this every year.
1: <laughs>
0: and then Anson, he was invited to meet the king and is later made Force Lord of the Admiralty. He was given £91,000 and his annual pay was generally £719 a year. Not bad. <laughs> and the regular crew, they got £300, which is 20 years' pay for them.
1: That's not bad either.
0: So you can see why people went away. Remember when we did our pepper episode and how much... Bringing back some of the spices was worth. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. I mean, big risk, but high reward. Now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Philip Sumray, um, he rose second in command during the voyage. And it was not just due to the unfortunate deaths of other officers, <laughs> but also due to his ability and skill. And during that time, he also formed a really close friendship with Anson. And he would be made.
1: They're the only deal left, that's why. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, he would be made captain of HMS Nottingham, and he would capture a French warship called the Mars.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: So he had like, a really good career ahead of him. I mean, amazing naval officer. And he also designed the first ever Royal Navy uniforms. So what Ooh. do you think he did that?
1: So um, it's like a lemon pouch to stop scurvy <laughs> uh, and to hold them up properly and keep them straight so they don't dive all day.
0: Um, no, it was after their dealings with the Chinese... They thought that they needed a really smart, amazing uniform. So they looked like proper official representatives of the king. Um, so that was one of the reasons why the uniforms were designed. Mm. So that the officers could really stand out and look the part and all...
1: Professional. Professional, yeah. Is that the um, the classic blue uniforms? It is Are they the same or have they changed really? They
0: would have changed since then. But the, the buttons and the, that general old idea that you have today was started there.
1: He is pretty good, actually. Uh-huh.
0: But unfortunately his life would be cut short. and He was killed in battle, where he was just thirty-four. On the fourteenth of October, seventeen forty-seven. He was hit by- <laughs> I <should laugh. clears throat>
1: he-, he was hit by a cannonball.
0: Thank you. He was hit by a cannonball, which isn't in the slightest a bit funny, but no, it was after no, this that's, that's trauma. Not it's not funny. And um so respected to see that there's actually a memorial to him in Westminster Abbey.
1: I think if he didn't get hit by that cannonball, really, unfortunately, um, he would have actually done a lot more.
0: He probably would have gone on to be an admiral as well.
1: um, One last thing. I think it was a jersey when he shot him. They were getting jealous. like, yeah.
0: Some of his family was from Jersey. His cousins, that was the admiral, was from Jersey. They're not the enemy. I've told you this before. We had somebody listen in Jersey the other day.
1: Oh, oh, um, if you're still listening, uh, I take back everything I said to uh, uh, support our Patreon. Yep. <laughs>
0: That's better, yes. Peace in our time. We don't want more of this stuff going <laughs> on. No. Right. Go on, there's been enough killing this episode. <laughs> um, but I guess you'll probably want to know what happened to the Centurion, won't you? That gallant mm. ship. Well, um, she was repaired so many times. Was she even the same ship? Just watch that Greek thing where you have one boat and if you replace enough parts of it is it still the same boat
1: oh yeah it's uh you remove a plank and replace it every time
0: yeah yeah but i think she still was the same ship her spirit was there and she would serve another 25 years
1: that's not bad
0: and um, i think even anson i don't know if it's a border but he led her in a battle where we defeated the french but we also have french listeners who we love really yeah and the spanish ones um yeah so that is the voyage of the centurion
1: oh and we've got a picture here wow they really got stuck around the Cape Horn, didn't they they
0: did yeah they went <laughs> all over the place around there i think that's an amazing tale of going and not treasure hunting in the same way as the first two but still one of the goals was, was to capture the wealth of spain and
1: yeah it's it's quite a good story as well and it involves the are great so that ten times better
0: yeah, I can't believe those Chelsea pensions there. I mean, that was dreadful what it's done to them. Mm-hmm. I know that you were joking about it with the three, but I hope you realise how atrocious it was aboard these ships.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and some of these boys were your age, were a bit older than you as well. Um, so, treasure. I mean, I think that these stories all have something in common, and that is mankind's lost and maybe greed to find wealth. And we go to the ends of the earth at the expense of ourselves or other people mm-hmm. because you've got the story of um, Anton the Hermit, who I don't know how true that one was, but it's definitely typical of these sort of stories where you have people in America, you have all the gold rushes there and the gold fever, and just being driven beyond anything else.
1: Yeah, and with Geyser as well, there's the obsession of staying there uh, 17 years as well and convincing other people to come over. So it's not just a few people. There's lots of people, and with this one um, being sort of forced with because it was more the the navy that wanted the gold rather than the actual people themselves this time, so they forced other people to get mm-hmm. the gold.
0: Yeah, so um, it's something odd about human nature where we just seem to be driven by greed, and mm. it takes a strong man to resist that.
1: Talking about greed, support us on Patreon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's treasure. Treasure. Treasure, yeah. Um, so we might touch a little bit more in our bonus episodes, which Anton will tell you about in a minute. Uh, but before we do that, if you can't get enough of this wonderful voice of mine, um, if you listen to episode 84 of the Ancient and Historic Order of the Jacket Ape, um, I read some really bad poetry for them in that episode.
1: I don't think it was bad. Well, the mm. the poetry was bad.
0: <laughs> oh, the reading was just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll play their trailer now. There are no knowns Known unknowns and unknown unknowns, but there are also unknown knowns. The ancient and esoteric order of the jackalope is a secret society devoted to unearthing and sharing this forgotten knowledge. Each episode, we take one of these strange stories and share it with you. No topic is off limits, except for the obvious. Available wherever fine podcasts are sold. Definitely worth listening to. Mm. Um, It's nice, good, quirky bits of history and things that they discover there. Uh, so, Anton, do you want to tell how we can be supported?
1: We can be supported? Well, you can review us. In fact, I think we got a review. We'll do that quickly now. Yeah. So this is the review. A five-star review, which is good. A charming journey of discovery and learning. An enchanting blend of education and entertainment, this show captures the essence of a child's inquisitive nature. The hosts bring to life a wide array of topics and provide accessible answers to the most awe-inspiring questions. Perfect for parents and children alike, this show is about the love for learning and the joy of discovery. A real gem.
0: I agree wholeheartedly with every word of that. Yeah. Um, although, except for maybe the children bit when we have some of the carnage on the ships, I think it's more moving into teenager territory now.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like... It's not aimed at children, but children can listen to it. It's parental guidance.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 At the I, moment. Yes. Um, so, how else can people support us?
1: Um, subscribe to our Patreon, which mm-hmm. we'll really, really, really like. You get quite a bit of bonus um stuff. Content. Con- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bonus very content. professional
0: content. As well. Actually, on the Patreon episodes, you take charge as well, don't you?
1: I do. You get to see. Um, what we do there. And I've written a story mm-hmm. called Takarajima. That's one I'm going to give away.
0: Yeah, loosely based on real history. Mm-hmm. Keeping our treasure theme. Um, we also might share a little bit about our geocaching, where we actually went uh, treasure hunting ourselves and met a pheasant. Um, and I might do a little bit more about some of the uh, logs that somebody wrote when they was on some of these islands and things, just a few little bits and pieces, because there's some nice description there.
1: And maybe even the, what's it called? Our brains just come like the wager, the wager.
0: Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I might do that. the wager. Yeah, I might do the wager.
1: That's like a whole other episode's worth for only five pound.
0: That is, that's incredible. Yeah, and also the stuff we've already got there from mm. last episode and other features such as us melting metal to make uh, divine penises, uh, phalluses.
1: <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the kids, but <clears throat>
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anything else to say, Anton?
1: We've got our cue cards don't we
0: yeah so um as we had our interview the other day well, the other day <laughs> months ago now probably with uh, paul mays from key cards we've selected a couple of key cards that fit this episode and i've got the nuestra senora de atacha mm-hmm. which is very badly pronounced which is another spanish treasure galleon and uh Let's have a quick look at the facts for it. So in 1622, the Spanish galleon, with that name I just said, set sail for Spain laden with gold, silver and pearls and other goods from the colonies of present-day Colombia, Panama and Cuba. But the galleon soon met the seafloor when a hurricane sank the vessel near Florida. Interesting. uh, Yeah. wasn't the British thinking here this time. (laughs) Or maybe it was uh, Hurricane Britain.
1: (laughs) Yes, that one. Um, I have got... Lock Archaic or Archaic Treasure, sometimes known as the Jacobite Gold. The Lock Archaic Treasure was a huge sum of Spanish gold since uh, um financed the Jacobite Rebellion of Bonnie Prince Charlie. But by the time the gold arrived in Scotland in 1746, the war was already over. <laughs> so one cast of the gold is said to have been taken by Macdonald, Not McDonald's. That's not how they're so rich. Oh,
0: well, that's the golden arches.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taken by McDonald of Baradestel, uh while the other six gets of gold are believed to have been hidden in a secret location somewhere
0: at the lock. Oh, so there's a lot of treasure still out there. Mm. We need a metal detector.
1: Yeah, you know what? You know how you can fund our metal detector. <laughs> <laughs> Join us on Patreon.
0: We might need. To, well, if everybody joins us on Patreon, we might need a metal detector.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> that will be part of the curious army. Yes. Ooh, oh, actually, that's a good idea. Yeah.
0: Anyway, let's uh, yeah, let's say our thank yous now. Um. So yeah, other ways you can support us are following us on social media. Where can you do that, Anton?
1: Twitter at.
0: Curiecut. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking too long. Curie Child Pod.
1: Instagram at
0: Curie Child Pod. Facebook. Search for the Curious Child.
1: Uh, we've got a website.
0: Child.com. Merch store shop. a Child.com.
1: I've got a YouTube channel. Uh,
0: the Curiosity of Gaming on YouTube.
1: Yep. Wow. That's
0: pretty much. Me- I can't speak anymore. That's probably it. Just search for us online, and you'll find all the places that you can follow us, or support us, or review us. Because we love reviews, and we might even send you some merch if you do that.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Do yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for, for listening. I think you should all go out treasure hunting now, but share your wealth um, with people around you, not to keep it for yourself.
1: I don't know if this is possible, Mm. but if the Patreon subscriber, will we know who they are? Because then we can send them some merch.
0: I'll have their email address so I can talk to them.
1: Okay, so our Patreon subscriber can get some merch, maybe. Yeah, yeah, well... We'll choose choose one. Yeah, we'll choose one, actually. Yeah. Um, So make sure you go in for that, and then we'll pick a random Mm one. And we'll give you um, a cool t-shirt or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's a nice idea. Cool, so thank you very much for listening. And um, we will see you soon. Love you.
1: Bye. Bye. We always Bye. say love you now. <laughs> I do, I love what this Do you? I do Get you back swap my... back
0: pitch Oh, so there's a back button on the mouse.
1: Ah, uh, where?
0: The side on the blue one.
1: Oh, that's that's a button. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, back to the podcast.
0: Hello, we're the QST of a Child podcast. I'm Anton, and I'm Rick.
1: We cover many different stories and topics on our podcast, which is about pretty much everything.
0: That's right, and we are delighted to have been invited back to the Intelligent Speech Conference. So, when is it, Anton?
1: Um, I don't know. I thought you knew.
0: I thought you knew.
1: So, what do we do now?
0: We're gonna need some sort of backup plan.
1: Okay, what's the conference about?
0: Well, luckily it's about contingency.
1: History's backup plans. So what are we going to be doing?
0: We're going to be telling the story of what happens when you're starving in a city under siege for months, surrounded by food. Food that you can't eat as it's your life's work. Food that's more important than you are.
1: Join us in World War II Soviet Russia as we tell the story of the Vavilov Institute of Plant Industry and the scientists who gave their lives so the world could have a plan B.
0: So what's our plan B going to be?
1: gonna have to edit in how our millions of fans can attend the intelligent speech 2023
0: join us 4th of november 2023 10 a.m to 6 p.m eastern standard time
1: tickets and more details available at intelligencespeechonline.com.
0: and if you use the offer code curiosity you get 10% off